Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. Welcome to everybody. Episode 472. Of the podcast, it is Week America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, December 26th, 2021, people. I hope everybody is doing well. Hope everybody is having a great day. And hope everybody had a very Merry Christmas. Hope you guys got to spend time with friends and family. Hope Santa brought all you little naughty girls and boys good gifts for under the Christmas tree. And hope everybody is enjoying hopefully a little bit of time off here during the holiday season. I do think this week we'll stick with two episodes. We'll do this Monday episode. We'll probably drop a Thursday episode that is heavy on college football playoff preview. Don't think we'll do three episodes. I know a lot of you are traveling. I know a lot of you are off from work. And so uh, I don't want to overwhelm the, 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 the podcast feeds here with podcasts, but we do have a show today, our normal Monday show, and I think what we're going to do is something a little bit different, okay? We are actually going to start with a Christmas Day story that I personally found interesting. We had two NFL games, the NBA was playing as usual, and I got to be honest, I've never cared less about Christmas Day NBA basketball, and I do wonder if the NFL is slowly but surely encroaching on Christmas Day in the NBA, and if they're about to kill Christmas Day NBA basketball, something we discussed on my radio show Saturday. I thought it was fun and interesting and thought I'd bring it as a topic here. From there, we'll start with the college football playoff stuff, right? The college football playoff semifinals are on this coming Friday. Michigan, Georgia, Alabama, Cincinnati, New Year's Eve. We'll start with kind of the first look at those college football playoff games later in the week as I said we will do the full-fledged preview I'll also preview some of those New Year's six-day games assuming they all get played the Rose Bowl the Sugar Bowl the Cotton Bowl on or the Cotton Bowl is part of the playoff Rose Sugar Fiesta etc on and on and on and we'll wrap with a little college basketball quiet week in college basketball but we're now at the halfway point and I'll give you two or three stories that I think are kind of important here as we hit the second half of college basketball conference play is really in full swing starting this week so a lot to talk about a lot to get to but with that said let's get to the topic of the day and the topic of the day as I said we just came off Christmas Hope everybody had a great Christmas. Hope everybody got all the presents that they were wishing for. Hope Santa didn't leave stocking in your coal, uh, coal in your stocking. Oh my goodness, I haven't recorded in two days and I'm a complete mess. By the way, even to backtrack for half a second, I do hope that you guys enjoyed the little Christmas special that I did on Thursday. As I said, it didn't feel necessary to yell and scream two days before Christmas about Arizona, Tennessee or COVID protocols or whatever. Thought I'd do something fun. Hope you guys enjoyed it. But as I said, hope you had a Merry Christmas. Let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is this. It was Christmas. We are two days removed. And as I said two seconds ago, I do hope you had a very Merry Christmas. And I hope you got to relax. And I hope as part of your relaxation, if you like to watch sports, and my guess is that if you listen to this podcast, you like to watch sports, my hope is that you got to sit back, watch some sports, some NFL, and some NBA. 
What was interesting about this specific Christmas Day, though, was that something really stood out to me, right? For years, we have had NBA basketball on Christmas Day. It has been completely synonymous with the holidays. So many great matchups through the years. Uh, you know, LeBron versus Kobe, Miami versus the Lakers, Shaq versus Kobe when Shaq left L.A. You go on and on and on down the list. As I said, Christmas Day has been synonymous with uh, the NBA for as long as I can remember being a sporting fan. But something funny happened on Saturday, and I couldn't help but think that a sea change is coming in the way that we consume sports. Because on Saturday, for the second straight year, we had NFL football on Christmas Day, and I cannot lie, the second that the NFL game started Green Bay, Cleveland, Indianapolis, Arizona, I kind of forgot the NBA existed. And so as I sat back on Saturday, again, we talked about it a little bit on my radio show, I could not help but think one thing. Is the NFL about to kill NBA basketball on Christmas Day? Is Christmas basketball about to go to the way of the dodo bird with the 30,000-pound monster Godzilla, the NFL squashing it into oblivion? And it sounds crazy. It sounds like it'll never happen. But I do think there is a little something to this idea, and I think you guys as sporting fans, I think you guys are probably a pretty good reflection of this because I bet a lot of you, much like me, once the NFL started, you kind of forgot the NBA even existed. And so let's backtrack, let's peel back the layers, and let me say a couple things about this past Christmas, two days ago, Saturday, December 25th, 2021, and what uh, you know the sports calendar that happened, right? First of all, I don't want to get too overly dramatic too early, uh, and as critical as I've been of the NBA on a lot of things through the years, the one thing I will say straight up, uh, they had some stuff working against them on Saturday, right? Some of the biggest stars on some of these teams were out. Kevin Durant did not play for the Brooklyn Nets. The Atlanta Hawks were down nine guys, I believe, including Trey Young. Giannis was actually in protocols right up until Christmas Day, so we didn't get the best version of Giannis. Luka Doncic is out because of COVID, and so the NBA was certainly working at a major disadvantage not having many of its marquee players in the games that were supposed to be on on Saturday. And what I would also say is before I start saying the NFL is taking Christmas and not giving it back, um, I don't know that the NFL wants to continue to play on Christmas Day. And it is worth noting that they normally play the Saturday night, Saturday afternoon games on Saturdays in December once college football ends after the conference championship games. And so I bring it up to very simply say there is that possibility that the NFL has no interest in playing on Christmas Day going forward, no interest in playing games, no interest in bringing fans to the stands, all that good stuff, uh, because we just don't know yet what they want to do. But as I said, this is now the second year in a row that the NFL has played on Christmas Day, and I think you kind of have to go back to last year to see how this all started, to see the success that it had, and to see why we might be getting NFL football on Christmas Day going forward. And I think it's really interesting, and you guys know I love sports. I, I, I love the behind-the-scenes stuff in sports, how stuff comes together, how it works, what works, what doesn't, all that good stuff. And if you go back to last year, we had Saints-Vikings on Christmas Day. But the reason we had Saints-Vikings on Christmas Day was really interesting. It was because of the fact that the NBA, if you can go back 12, 13 months, was not sure when their actual 2020-2021 season was going to start. They had the bubble in the summer of 2020 to finish their season during the, the early part of the pandemic. The season ends in like early to mid-September, if I remember correctly. And once the season ends, the NBA can't even decide when they're going to start the next season coming off of the bubble season in late 2020. And so there's talk that it's going to get pushed back into 2021, that they're not going to open the season before or on Christmas. And so that was how the NFL kind of sidled their way, snuck their way in. Sidled, by the way, a nice term for, for the Seinfeld fans there, but they sidled their way in the side door and said, well, wait a second now, NBA, if you're not positive you're going to start on Christmas Day, then you know what? We'll give the fans a little salt. We'll just give the fans a little taste of NFL football, and we'll go ahead and see if we, uh, you know, if you guys have any interest, blah, 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 this and that. And then, oh, by the way, NBA, uh, if you do decide to play, we're just playing one game. No big deal. You know, we're not even going to take up too much of your bandwidth. And so what ends up happening, the NBA does start its season last year right before Christmas Day, but in that window where they weren't sure when they were going to start, when guys like LeBron James were pushing back, the, uh, the, you know, saying we can't start, it's too early, we just finished this bubble, the NFL said, yeah, we're just going to throw a game on Christmas Day, no big deal. You know what happened? And I looked this up before my radio show on Saturday just con to confirm. The game that was on Christmas Day last year in the NFL did insane numbers. 
Overall, 20 million viewers watched Viking Saints on Christmas Day last year. 20 million viewers. For comparison's sake, for comparison's sake, the NBA Finals last year, Game 6, Bucks suns peaked at, at 16 million and did across the board about 12 million consistently viewers, Game 6 NBA Finals. So in other words, at its peak, the highest rated NBA game of last season didn't even come close to getting the number that a Christmas Day game did in the NFL. And this isn't to necessarily at this particular moment compare NBA versus NFL, but I do think the NFL kind of smelt some blood in the water. And I do think the NFL was kind of like, well, wait a second now. We got all these people on Christmas Day. And oh, by the way, remember last year there was NBA basketball on Christmas Day. And I think the NFL kind of said, well, wait a second now. We already have Thanksgiving. We already have a lot of other windows and wiggle room and all this and stuff. But why can't we put games on Christmas Day? And so maybe it was a total coincidence that we had two games on Christmas Day this year. Uh, and maybe it was only because the, it fell on a Saturday and there's usually Saturday games in December. But I do wonder if this, if this is the plan of the NFL going forward. And I do wonder what it means for the NBA. Because like I said a minute ago, I don't ever remember the NBA feeling less relevant on Christmas Day than it did this year, 2021. And I even go back to probably the marquee game of Christmas Day uh, was supposed to be Lakers-Nets, but you know Kevin Durant was out, Anthony Davis is hurt, whatever. But the marquee game ended up being Phoenix against Golden State, which ended at the exact same time as Green Bay-Cleveland. And it kind of felt like everybody was watching Green Bay-Cleveland. Nobody was paying attention to the NBA. And I kind of do wonder if the NFL smells blood in the water. And I will say in the bigger picture, and we'll get to some college football in a minute, um, you know, I think this is kind of a metaphor for, for both of these leagues, right? And what I do think is important to note, we will find out in the coming days if I am right on this, if the NFL just squashed the NBA on Christmas Day. Uh, maybe that'll be part of where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong on Thursday's show, because I do think we'll, we'll find out pretty soon if the NBA, you know, maybe rated a little bit better than we thought, if the NFL rated a little bit worse, or did the NFL completely squash the NBA? But I do think this is kind of a metaphor for both leagues, right? Um, you know, Roger Goodell is nothing but a national media punching bag, but it seems like everything the NFL touches turns to gold, and Adam Silver can do no wrong in the media's eyes, and the NBA is a complete disaster from a, a business and, and growth and everything standpoint, and so I do think it's interesting, right? Because, uh, you know, I've talked about this for years on this show. Like, everybody loves to crush Roger Goodell, but the bottom line is, like, like, Every, like, like everything the NFL touches, as I said a minute ago, turns to gold. Every decision that he makes, uh, you know, works out well for the league. And part of it is I understand people love the NFL. Part of it is I understand that there's now more betting than there's ever been. Part of it is I understand that there's fantasy. But I bring it up to say, for all the criticism that Roger Goodell gets, it seems like everything he does works out well. Just think about it. Just think about it. Think back about, what, six, seven years when they first implemented the full-time Thursday night schedule. Um, and and I, you know some of you might not remember, but it was a very controversial thing at the time. It used to be kind of like what we have on Saturday right now, where there was a couple Thursday night games at the end of the year. It was kind of something different. It was kind of quirky. It was kind of weird. And then one year we just decided, you know what? We're going to sixteen. We're we're going to sixteen weeks of Thursday night football, and everybody freaked out, and the players, and this and that. And then they got over it, and then it was just part of the deal. And then we moved on. Same with the playoffs last year. Remember the playoffs last year? We're going to add an extra wild card game. Oh my goodness, why are we messing up the symmetry of wild card weekend of this weekend of that weekend? And then we got an extra playoff game on Saturday, and we got an extra playoff game on Sunday that first weekend. And all of a sudden, we were like, "This is awesome. This is great. Let's do more of this." By the way, 17-week regular season this year. We'll see what the ripple effects or the side effects of it are, but I tend to believe that people are going to love it. You go across the board beyond just the games and the playoffs and the Thursday night games. Don't forget, uh, you know, when the Rams left St. Louis for, the, for Los Angeles, it was incredibly unpopular at the time, and now I looked it up this morning. The Rams' valuation of its of its uh, franchise is well over $4 million. The Raiders move into Vegas, on and on and on and on and on. And so I just bring this up because for all the criticism that the NFL gets, it seems like everything that they do works out well. 
Thursday night football worked out. Uh, the, 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 you know, the, the extra playoff spot works out well now, by the way, as I record here on Sunday, we have a bunch more teams that are in the playoff mix simply by adding one more wildcard spot. And it makes these week 15, 16, 17 games much more relevant. Uh, beyond that, we of course have the, uh, expanded, the, the extra week of the regular season. And so I am just saying for all the criticism the NFL gets, uh, they, it feels like everything they do works out well for them. And I do wonder if Christmas Day is next, right? It's really interesting. You go back to last week. Obviously, a few games got pushed back because of COVID to Tuesday night. Well, guess what happened? The Tuesday night ratings were through the roof. And I saw Colin Cowherd, you know, my buddy, and I don't want to speak for him, but on one of his shows, one of his podcasts, I think he kind of speculated, hey, is it possible that we see Tuesday night football down the road? Uh, you know, not, maybe not every week to start, maybe not this, but, but every once in a while because the NFL remains the highest-rated TV show in America pretty much across the board, and the, the, the TV networks want more NFL, the, the, the league wants more NFL, whatever. So I'm rambling, I'm raving, I'm ranting, I'm raving, I'm this. But I just found it really interesting that on Sunday, it was the first, or on Saturday, we got two NFL games the second year in a row, and I will be fascinated with two things. One, I will be fascinated to see what the TV ratings are for the NFL. I tend to think that that Browns, Packers game, the numbers were through the roof, even going back to Thanksgiving, by the way, and I know the NBA doesn't play on Thanksgiving, but the Raiders-Cowboys was the highest-rated Thanksgiving game this year in 30-plus years. Uh, so fast forward, I'm very curious to see what the ratings were, especially of that uh, Packers-Browns game. And then, of course, also the Cardinals-Colts game, because I think that'll be an interesting barometer as well. If the Cardinals and Colts, to pretty relatively, and I know we got a lot of Colts fans that listen, but in the grand scale, we're not talking about Packers, Steelers, Cowboys, Brady, Rodgers, Belichick, whatever. Those are two pretty sort of irrelevant franchises on a national scale. And if they absolutely squashed the Saturday night NBA primetime Christmas Day game of Lakers versus Nets, I do tend to wonder if the NFL is going to look back and say, dude, we, we got we to gotta press forward. Christmas Day is ours. We planted our flag on that territory, and we're going to move forward. What will be especially interesting next year, Christmas Day does fall on a uh, Christmas Day does fall on a Sunday. I would expect the NFL to to kind of keep their schedule as is. It's interesting. We looked it up on Saturday. The last time Christmas uh, Christmas fell on a Sunday, the NFL actually pushed all their games to Christmas Eve on Saturday and only played one or two games on Christmas. Next year, I would expect the full Christmas Day treatment across the board. Games all over on Christmas Day. And then I think 2023 is going to be the interesting year. And I know I'm kind of all over the place now. I'm rambling like I tend to do. But I do wonder, 2023, when Christmas Day officially falls on a Monday, a day where we usually only get one NFL game and where we would normally get five NBA games, do we see two? Do we see three NFL games? And does the NFL officially plant its flag on Christmas Day? All right. I think we're going to take a quick break. Now, listen, I, I hope you guys enjoyed the, the rant and rave. Torres is back, okay? He had last week off. He was nice. Uh, you know, he was wearing his uh, Santa hat, uh, saying nothing but nice things on last Thursday's episode. Now I'm back. I'm firing. You know, flames are coming out of my mouth talking about all this stuff. But I did think that was kind of something interesting to talk about. Coming out of Christmas Day, I know a lot of you guys watch the NFL. I know probably not nearly as many of you guys and girls watch the NBA. Uh, and I'm curious to see what the ratings are. So this is what I want to do. I want to come back. I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll start the college football playoff conversation. As I'm recording, Georgia, Michigan, Alabama, Cincinnati, they are traveling to the college football playoff sites, Georgia and Michigan in uh, Miami, Alabama and Cincinnati in Dallas. And we're going to have ourselves a playoff, knock on wood, uh, later this week. We'll start with the first look. Obviously, from there, we'll do a little college hoops. I will be right back. All right, everybody, I'm back. Good to be back, good to be back. And I do want to switch gears, and I do want to talk a little college football because as crazy as it sounds, it seems like a lifetime ago that those college football conference championship games were played. Michigan destroys Iowa, Alabama destroys Georgia, Cincinnati destroys Houston. Uh, and we had that Sunday, great Sunday every year where we have the college football playoff announced and, of course, the major bowl games. Well, now we're just a couple days away. 
Co- uh, the, the college football semifinals are being played on Friday night this year, New Year's Eve, Alabama, Cincinnati early, uh, Michigan, Georgia late. That's right, rocking New Year's Eve with Jim Harbaugh and Kirby Smart, baby. And so I'm really excited, really ready to talk about this and really ready to start previewing these games. A little bit of a housekeeping note. I think what we'll do on today's show is just kind of first glance at these games, just some big picture overall deep dive thoughts and then we will get much more into the nitty gritty on Thursday's show I think we'll do two shows this week again I know so many of you have some time off of work don't feel like we need to do three shows fewer commutes less travel all that good stuff but I bring it up to say Thursday will be the deep dive Thursday we will preview some of those other bowl games the Rose Bowl the Sugar Bowl the Peach Bowl whatever um and then we'll do the, the deep dive in the college football playoff. I would say if you want even more bowl coverage, I encourage you to subscribe to College Football Betting with Aaron Torres. I will have an episode out later this week previewing basically all of the big games, any big relevant game, certainly the ones that have not been canceled. And so uh, before we get to the games, one last little housekeeping note, and I think it's important. Listen, I'm not going to spend the next six, seven, eight minutes yelling and screaming about COVID, but it remains the biggest story heading into the college football playoff and these bowl games, okay? Uh, A couple bowl games have already been canceled. The Hawaii Bowl on Christmas Eve, the Fenway Bowl, Virginia versus SMU. I know America was looking forward to that one, baby. Um, But we all know where I stand, and I don't need to spend more time on this show telling you where I stand. I truly believe that at this point, We have the data. We have the information. It's worth noting that two of these teams are publicly 100% vaccinated. Michigan, 100% vaccinated, and the players all got their boosters. Uh, Alabama, 100% vaccinated. Nick Saban said a number of their players have gotten boosters as well. So I don't need to yell and scream. I truly, you guys know where I stand. You guys, guys and girls know where I stand on all of this. Uh, I believe that if you're, if you're, you know, if you feel sick, you need to get tested. If you feel sick, stay away from the facility. But as I've said before, that's what we've done for decades with the flu and other illnesses, other viruses, other whatever. And if you feel like you're healthy enough to play, you should be allowed to play. I don't like the idea that guys are testing positive with the sniffles. I don't like the idea that guys are not allowed to play if they feel healthy. And I hate the idea that the college football uh, you know, powers that be have said that these semifinals could end in forfeits if there are any COVID outbreaks. But unfortunately, uh, I have no control over it. And so I've said my piece. You guys know where I stand. And that is all I'm going to say about COVID. If we get one of these games canceled because of forfeit, we'll, cu- we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But the next 15, 20 minutes, however long it is, talking about these college football semifinals, it's going to be positive. It's going to be glasses half full. We're going to assume that everybody is happy and healthy. Uh, and as Jim Harbaugh said, and John Rothstein says it quite often now, we're going to stay positive, test negative. And let's talk about these college football playoff semifinals. And like I, I said... I do just want to kind of hit a big bullet point or two on each of these teams, each of these games, and then we'll do the deep dive on Thursday's show. And I actually want to start with the first game. I certainly know that Georgia-Michigan is probably the more interesting game, the more compelling game. Vegas thinks it'll be the closer game. I think all of us think it'll be the closer game. But I want to start with Alabama-Cincinnati, and I want to start with Alabama-Cincinnati for one simple reason. It is because I believe that the single biggest question of this playoff One will be answered in this game, and it's the single biggest question that will determine the national champion, and so that's why I believe that we should start here. And that question is this. Will the real Alabama please stand up? That's right. I just pulled a little M&M. Will the real Slim Shady please stand up? Will the real Crimson Tide please stand up? Because when I look at this game, one thing stands out to me. Who is the real Alabama? Because if the real Alabama is the one that we saw in Atlanta on the first weekend of December in the SEC Championship game, then it's over. We talked about Georgia all year this, Ohio State, Michigan, whatever. If the Alabama that we saw in the SEC Championship game shows up to this college football playoff, then it's over. It's a wrap. Everybody else is playing for second place, and Alabama is going to win a second straight national championship. The thing is, though, what, what reason do we really have to believe that that is the real Alabama? Because I'm a firm believer, look, I believe teams can get better over the course of the year. I believe that teams can get worse over the course of the year. And I believe that teams in the right situation, right motivation, right coach, right this, right that, can play the game of their season, especially when they have the talent of Alabama. But what I also believe is that... the when we have a 12, 13 week sample size in college football that you are one specific thing and then you show your something completely else in one week, 
I'm not always subject to believe that you have absolutely changed as much as you just caught the right team on the right day at the right moment. And so when I look at this Alabama team, I continue to see the team and I continue to wonder if we are going to see the team in this playoff that we saw in the regular season. And the regular season, Alabama was certainly good. They were certainly very good in many cases. And look, we all understand, and I've said it a million times on this show, we all understand that uh, Alabama's quote-unquote down regular season would be great for 125 out of 130 FBS teams. And Alabama, to its credit, even going into the SEC championship game, went 11-1, and and that is a season that any program in college football virtually would take, except for maybe Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and maybe one or two others. Uh, you know, Mississippi State football would kill for Alabama's regular season. UCLA football would kill for Alabama's regular season. Tennessee, Missouri, uh, Texas A&M would kill for Alabama's regular season. But there is a different standard at Alabama. And even though they went 11-1, and there were certainly struggles along the way. I've talked about it quite a bit. But it is worth noting, just go week by week through Alabama's schedule. Uh, You go back, obviously, look, you go back to week three, they played Florida. A Florida team that eventually finished six and seven, fired Dan Mullen, just lost UCF in the Gasparilla Bowl. That Florida team was a one two point conversion away from tying Alabama, forcing overtime, and potentially beating them. Uh, Texas AM was a loss. And I understand Texas AM is a good team, but it's a loss. From there, you think they're going to bounce back. Instead, they play Tennessee, a game that was a one-possession game into the fourth quarter before they pull away. They beat LSU by six. They beat Arkansas by seven. They need two overtimes to beat Auburn in the Iron Bowl a week before the SEC championship game. And so I'm not saying that Alabama hasn't changed. I'm not saying that Alabama hasn't drastically improved, but this was a team with major flaws throughout the year. They struggled to run the ball. Remember, six yards rushing against LSU earlier this year. They struggled in pass defense, giving up big plays. I remember uh, watching that Tennessee game on a Saturday night, and Hendon Hooker is throwing the ball all over the field. K.J. Jefferson threw the ball all over the field. Ton of success against this Alabama secondary. And so, again, my question is, who is the real Alabama? And I think the other question is, what has this three or four weeks off meant for Alabama? Because when I look at this Alabama team, what is interesting and what stands out to me is it could go one of two ways. One, they played the game of their lives against Georgia. The season's on their line. The back's against the wall. Nobody believes they're going to win. Nick Saban has unquestionable motivation going into the game. He talked about rat poison after, about how uh, you you guys gave us the good kind of rat poison this week. But is it possible that they revert back to that same team that we saw earlier in the season in the college football playoff? I also think it's worth noting, and I don't have the answer to this question, by the way. That's why it's the biggest question going into the playoff, is could it work the other way? Could Alabama have picked up some some momentum in that SEC championship game and use that three or four weeks to get better? Guys, girls, you know why all these coaches love playing in these bowl games? It's not to get an extra game under your belt. It's not to travel halfway across the country to play some team that you'll never play again. It's because you get all these extra weeks of practice. And what it does, it allows you to get your guys in facility. It allows you guys to watch film. It allows you guys to lift. It allows you guys to do this. It allows you guys to do that. And then that carries momentum into the spring, into the following season. And that's why these coaches love these bowl games. And that's why these bowl games will never get canceled. And that's why uh, coaches don't even care if their best players are opting out to get ready for the NFL. Because most of them are using them to get ready for next season. Now, that's not the case with Alabama, but I think it is worth noting. This was one of the younger, really good teams in college football this year. Remember, they lost six first-round picks off last year's national championship team. They lost basically everybody of note on offense. Mac Jones, Devontae Smith, uh, Jalen Waddle, Najee Harris, Alex Leatherwood, on and on and on and on and on. So I bring it up to just very simply say that with Alabama, Could they use this three weeks off, this three weeks between games to get better, to continue to build the momentum? Or is it possible that one, they just revert back to who they were against Auburn, can't stop, uh, you know, can't stop uh, the can't stop the pass on defense, can't run the ball on offense. And then also it's worth noting as well. I do think there's a little tiny bit of that. Could they be looking ahead factor? And I know it sounds crazy. It's a college football semifinal. You're playing for a championship, but it's human nature. 
it's really funny. Over the last couple days, as I've started prepping for everything I'm going to do this week with articles, podcasts, radio, whatever, um, you know, I started looking for articles and just anything relevant to this game. And you know what most of the articles are? Is, uh, you know, a- Alabama media, Alabama fans, and I'm not even blaming them, basically saying, what do we need to do to get ready for Georgia in the national championship game? And so Alabama is looking their fans and their fan base, and I'm not saying the guys in the facility, but Alabama is looking at this uh, as a tune-up for whoever they play in the national championship game, and I do think it'll be a lot closer. From the other perspective, what I think is interesting is, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about Cincinnati really quick before we get to Michigan and Georgia, and I think what's also interesting with this Bama stuff is even if Bama... Uh, isn't the team that they were against Georgia. Even if they are the team that was much more uh, a team that struggled quite a bit over the first 12 weeks of the season. And when I say struggled, again, it's relative, but there were a lot of close games, games that could have gone either way. The Auburn game could have gone the other way. Uh, the the you know the Florida game could have gone the other way. The Tennessee game was too close for comfort there for a while. But I bring it up because I do wonder this also. Even if Alabama isn't the team that we saw against Georgia, is Cincinnati necessarily the team to expose it? And that's something that I really don't know. Uh, Because, listen, I do think Cincinnati's a great story. And I am not the guy that's going to come on this show and they don't belong in the playoff. No. You went 13-0. You won at Georgia. You destroyed Indiana. Or you won at Georgia. You won at Notre Dame. You destroyed Indiana. You destroyed Houston in your conference championship game. Houston's a legitimate top 20 team. I have no problem with Cincinnati being here. I guess what my concern would be was this, is that I think defensively, they are elite across the board, but so was Georgia coming into that national semifinal or into the SEC championship game. Now, I will say, Luke Fickle, his staff obviously has three more weeks than Georgia did to prepare. They're going to, you know, turn over every rock. They're going to do everything that they can to get ready for this game. But I also don't think it changes the fact that it's not as though Alabama didn't just see an elite defense three weeks ago in the SEC championship game. And so I don't know if the answer for George, for, for Cincinnati uh, is to just play lights out defense and that'll keep you in the game. I just don't know because that was Georgia's game plan three weeks ago and it didn't work out. And I do think you're going to have to score points. And I do wonder if Cincinnati is going to be capable of doing that. Now, it's worth noting Cincinnati did have success moving the ball this year. They scored a lot. But they were not elite offensively. This was a team that finished 47th nationally in total offense. This was a team that, in terms of the passing game, was good, but you know, by no means elite. They finished 53rd nationally, about 248 yards passing per game. And I do understand part of that is uh, you're getting up big in some games, you're running the ball, you're not as this, you're not as that. But with due respect to Cincinnati, it's not as though they were blowing out everybody in the AAC. And let's be honest, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast over the last three, four, five weeks, is that they really kind of got lucky to even be in this position. This wasn't Cincinnati's revenge tour all season long, just destroying everybody. There were some close calls along the way, and Cincinnati simply benefited that there was no playoff caliber team out of the ACC. There was no playoff caliber team out of the Pac-12. The Big 12 eliminated itself when Oklahoma State lost on the final day of the season. And so I could go on and on. I'm not going to, but I'm just bringing it up to say I like the Cincinnati story. I think it's interesting. We'll take a deeper dive with kind of some more statistical stuff on Thursday's show. But even if Alabama is not that team... Um, I'm just not sure that Cincinnati can keep up for four quarters. Let's get to the other one, the big one. As I said, Rocket New Year's Eve with Kirby and Harbaugh, baby. How about that? How about Rocket New Year's Eve with Kirby and Harbaugh? Uh, Michigan versus Georgia. That is the late game on, uh, you know, on Friday night, New Year's Eve. And I got to tell you, man, like I am so, so, so excited about this one from so many different perspectives this one's about a 7 30 eastern time kickoff in miami party in the city where the heat is on all night on the beach till the break of dawn baby that's right i'm bringing back all the 90s hits uh that one was will smith for people that are too young to remember but when i look at this game i think a couple things stand out um first of all i find it very interesting the point spread is georgia is a seven and a half point favorite coming into this one okay and it has not moved since the game opened at about seven, you know it opened at about seven and a half and it stayed there. I believe most of the money is coming in on Michigan. And if you follow gambling at all, and I'm not trying to make this a gambling show, we have a college football betting show specifically for that. I bring it up because if you follow betting and you follow the numbers and you follow all that stuff, seven and a half is a very interesting number. 
because seven and a half is really trying to entice betters to bet on Michigan. Because basically you're saying, not only can they win and I win that bet, but if they lose by a touchdown or less, I win that bet. And so Vegas is telling you, well, you got to take Michigan. I mean, even if they lose by a touchdown, you still win your bet, which means that Vegas seems to want you to take Michigan plus seven and a half, which means that Vegas thinks that Georgia may win this game more convincingly. So that is the first thing more than anything that stands out is it seems as though Vegas wants you to take uh, Georgia in this game. But let's break it down. And again, we'll do the big picture 30,000 foot view stuff today, and then we'll re- we'll kind of go deeper into this game come Thursday's episode. From Georgia's perspective, listen, I think it's very much to me the same thing about Georgia as it was to Alabama that I talked about a minute ago. Who is the real Georgia? Can they please step up and can we please see who they are? Because this was a team that not only dominated the regular season, but they were also a team that did it with a flair and a swagger and a fearlessness where they walked into your stadium and they just didn't want to just beat you. They wanted to embarrass you, okay? I mean, go ahead and look at some of these final scores against teams, for the record, that aren't that bad. I mean, Arkansas finished in the top 25. Georgia beats them 37-0. I know Auburn struggled down the stretch, but it was 34-10 to final score, and I watched that game, and Georgia basically was up about 31-3 to going into the fourth quarter and basically just bled out the clock and could have won by a lot more, uh, but Auburn scored late, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Go on and on and on. They beat Kentucky 30-13, to which was ranked in the top 15 at the time. They beat Tennessee by 34. And so I'm just bringing all this up, 24, excuse me, on that Tennessee game to say that who is the real Georgia? And more importantly, why did we get the performance that we did from Georgia in that SEC championship game? Like, to me, that is the most interesting part of this. And this is something that, again, we'll never get an answer to. But I'd love to have a sports psychologist go visit with the dogs and try to figure out what happened on that Saturday night in Atlanta against Alabama. Because to me, a couple of things. One, I think you can look at it from the Alabama perspective, which we just talked about. It's their biggest game of the season. Their season's on the line. You got to remember it from the opposite perspective as well with Georgia, is that with Georgia, is it possible that they really did just read too many headlines? Oh, they're unbeatable. Oh, this defense is historic. Oh, nobody can move the ball on them. All that stuff. Is it possible that they just came into this game believing their own hype? And oh, by the way, that a lot of the teams that they beat did end up being overrated. Uh, the fact remains, their final four games, of the, final f- yeah, four games of the regular season as I discussed on this show throughout, really their last five coming out of their bye, uh, Florida fired their coach and was awful. Missouri finished just finished 6-7 and seven and lost to Army in a bowl game. Tennessee played well. Charleston Southern, Georgia Tech was terrible. Those were the final five games coming into the Alabama game. And then I think there's also the, the, the psychological, emotional aspect of the reality that Georgia went into that SEC championship game understanding that, you know what? If we don't win this game, we're still in the college football playoff no matter what. Now, I don't think, to be clear, I don't think that they wanted to lose the game. I don't think that they were going in not trying to win. But I do think there is something to be said to the fact of like, you know, maybe they just weren't psychologically as fired up for a chance to compete for an SEC championship as they needed to be, knowing that no matter what happened, they were going to be in the college football playoff. And so to me, I do think we get a better version of Georgia. Now, the question is, is that an elite version of Georgia? And the question is, of course, how do they handle the dual physicality of Michigan? I think that, you know, that really is kind of the perspective from either side is these are two teams that like to bang heads, play hard, run the ball right at you. And who has more wear, you know, who who is able to wear down the other team in a way uh, that the other team can't? And so I will say, if you're a Georgia fan, I do think you got to feel better because this matchup kind of favors a little bit more how you want to play. Michigan isn't going to throw the ball 40 times down the field uh, you know, with, with a Heisman Trophy caliber quarterback. With a first-round quarterback uh, selection in Bryce Young, which Bryce Young will be when he declares for the draft after next season. Um, and so when you look at this game... I do think there's some element of that as well, is that this actually, from a matchup perspective, as good as Michigan is, I do think it's kind of a nice matchup for Georgia because the things that Alabama did to beat you, I love Michigan, but I'm not sure that they can do them. Now, from Michigan's perspective, this is what I think is especially interesting about Michigan. I talked about how the pause could help or hurt Alabama. I think you can argue there's no doubt that coming into this playoff, 
the pause is going to hurt Michigan or in theory at least could hurt Michigan more than any other team in this college football playoff. And let me explain why. Look at the other three teams in this playoff and what the three weeks off does for them. Besides the obvious, it allows them to get healthy. Alabama, probably the youngest team in the playoff, allows them to just continue that progression upward. Georgia, it allows them to lick their wounds, get back. How about my dogs? Been a while since I did that. Had to do it. Uh, Gives you a while to lick your wounds, to get back, to get ready, uh, and to just put that Alabama game behind you. And then from Cincinnati's perspective, it's kind of the same thing, right? Cincinnati, long season, you're carrying the weight of the world. Now you're in the playoff, and you need all the time you can to get ready for Alabama. But Michigan's kind of the opposite. I think you could argue that, uh, you know, Georgia, clear, I don't think you could argue, it's indisputable. Georgia did not play its best football in that SEC championship game. Alabama did play its best football, but they were not at their peak prior to that SEC championship game. Cincinnati, much the same. Cincinnati probably peaked about week four, week five when they went to Notre Dame and won that game. And so when I look at this game, uh, Michigan's the only team that you can really say, you know what? They were absolutely hitting their stride coming out of the regular season. Final three games, 59-18 win at Maryland, 42-27 win over Ohio State. And then just when you think that they're going to have a letdown because they just beat Ohio State, they go to the Big Ten Championship game and beat Iowa 42-3. And so there's no doubt that Michigan was playing the best football of anybody over a two, three-week stretch coming into this playoff. There is no doubt that I think if Jim Harbaugh had his druthers, he probably would have wanted to play this game a week later, not three or four weeks later. And I do think this could be a factor, right? We've talked about this for years with the college football playoff, with the BCS National Championship game, about how having you know 21 to 24 to 32 days off, uh, you know, I remember in the BCS Championship Day game day era, you'd have sometimes upwards of 40 days off between your final game of the regular season and the BCS championship. And so you look at Michigan, they last played against Iowa, um, uh, uh, you know, in the Big Ten championship game. That was a game that was played on December 4th. Uh, you fast forward, it's going to be December 31st, so that's 25 days off. It's the same as everybody else, but you do kind of wish to build some momentum. The one thing I will say about Michigan on a positive side, though, um, you know, Michigan, there's no doubt in my mind, has played comparable defenses to Georgia. Like, I think the idea is, well, you know, they've never seen a team like Georgia. And it's like, yeah, I know Georgia has the size, speed, athleticism, but there was actually a team that ranked ahead of Georgia in basically every major defensive category uh, in college football this year, and it was Wisconsin. And Michigan won at Wisconsin 38-17. Now, I will note in that game, it was only 20-10 to going into the fourth quarter, and they had 18 unanswered points in the fourth. Um... But, you know, they played a really good Wisconsin team, and Iowa statistically was a very good defensive team uh, throughout the regular season, and Michigan put up 42 points on them to end the regular season. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about both of these games over the next few, uh, over the next episode. We'll go more in depth. I'll kind of give you more matchups, more styles, more breakdowns. But when I look at this, these two games, those are my first initial thoughts. I think the big questions are, who is the real Alabama? And even if Alabama isn't who they look like against Georgia, is Cincinnati the team to expose them? And then I think from Georgia's perspective, was it possible that they went into that SEC championship game a little too overconfident? What will they look like when they step on the field? And then from Michigan's perspective, does the layoff have a negative, uh, you know, negative kind of situation for them? This is what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I do want to come back. And I do want to wrap with a little college hoops. It was kind of a quiet week in college hoops last week, but we are at about the halfway point of the regular season, and I thought it'd be kind of a good time to step back, readjust, reflect. I'll give you, you know, a couple different things on what I've seen so far, what I hope to see going forward. I'll be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. We'll wrap with a little bit of college hoops. How about your boy Torres, by the way? Most versatile man in podcasting goes from NFL and NBA in segment one to college football in segment two. Now segment three, we're talking college hoops. Maybe my boy, maybe your boy's bread and butter. I don't know. Love college hoops, though. Love college hoops. And it's an interesting time in college hoops. It's actually a little bit of a quiet time. And so this won't be a traditional college hoop segment where we're breaking down games. We're doing this. What does Arizona's loss mean at Tennessee? 
Uh, but instead, I think it's a good time to kind of do a 30,000-foot view of the sport as a whole. Because at the end of the day, this is kind of two things. One, it's been a quiet few weeks. There isn't really that much to break down. Part of it is COVID cancellations, but also a lot of it is NBA, is, is finals weeks, uh, Christmas break, all that stuff. So there really haven't been all that many marquee games. But then two... We really are, as crazy as it sounds, at about the halfway point of the college basketball season. The uh, November and December out-of-conference games are basically done. Uh, The January-February conference games are about to ramp up. And so because of it, this feels like a good time to kind of reset and talk some big-picture stuff with college hoops. And there are two topics that I really want to get to, including the first one, which is something you guys have asked me quite a bit over the last two, three, four weeks. And that is this. Aaron, who do you believe is the number one team in college. Who do you believe is the number one team in the country? Who do you believe is the best team? Who do you believe can win a national championship? And so what I would say about this is, first of all, it's complicated because I don't know if there is a definitive best team. And it is so funny to compare this year in college basketball to last year in college basketball, where it really only took about a week to 10 days to two weeks. You start to realize, whoa, 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 wait a second now. Gonzaga, Baylor, they're better than everybody else. Like, like, and it's big. It's a big gap. I remember Gonzaga, if you remember last year, opened the season on Thanksgiving Day, I believe, or maybe it was Black Friday. I can't remember. But they played Kansas. They destroyed Kansas. You're like, oh my God, this team's really good. Then they beat Virginia. They beat Iowa. They beat whoever. And you realize they're really good. And it was the same with Baylor. This year, I don't think there's a clear-cut, definitive best team in college basketball, but I think that's a good thing. I think we're going to have three, four, five teams over the course of the next couple weeks take a stab at that number one spot. Uh, We've already had a bunch of teams at number one, Gonzaga, Duke, Purdue, uh, now Baylor. And so with that said, let's get into it, and let's try to answer the question, who is the best team in college basketball right now? And I do think there are four teams that you can legitimately make the case for. The first one... I think it's only right we start with Baylor. And to be abundantly clear, I do not necessarily believe that Baylor is the best team in college basketball, but they're the number one team in the country in the rankings. They're obviously the reigning national champion. They bring back a lot of players from last year's national championship team. They are undefeated, one of the few power conference undefeated teams in college basketball who had uh, Baylor, USC, and LSU as the only undefeated teams in college basketball from Power 5, Power 6 conferences at this time this year. But I think Baylor justifiably deserves to be in that number one position. Now, what I will say, something that has bothered me because I've seen a little bit of this, I saw a little bit early of, is it possible Baylor is better than last year? No, it's not possible. Stop. Don't even compare. When you factor in that Baylor had, first of all, all five starters back last year that included two two first-round NBA draft picks, a lottery pick, and Davion Mitchell. It's not fair to compare this team to last year, but they are really good. They are very talented, and they are justifiably the number one team in the country right now based on everything that they've done. First of all, they play great defense like they always have, and what I really like about them is they have really about five, six guys that are between about 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", to 6'7", that really are just switchable, interchangeable, and they all defend. Uh, and that was what stood out in that Villanova game. It was my, and Villanova could not do anything in that game, and it was a direct reflection of how good of a defensive team that Baylor is. And then they still have the two shot blockers down low in Flo Thamba and Jonathan Chamachachua, who were both part of that national championship team last year. And so you can kind of play this four-out style uh, on offense where you have uh, the offense is still flowing, which we're going to get to the offense in a minute, but then you still have that rim protector on defense. Pretty much switch anybody at any position, then you got the rim protection, and they just play really, really solid defense. If you want to say they're the best team in the Big 12, I have absolutely no problem with it. I know I picked Kansas to win the national championship. I know I picked Texas to make the Final Four, but if you believe Baylor right now is the best team in college basketball and certainly the best team in the Big 12, I have no fundamental objection to it. What I would also say with Big with, with Baylor is offensively, they remain insanely balanced. And that was what was so tough about their team last year is if you remember, they had four or five guys that could beat you on any given night. Last year, it was Jared Butler. It was Davion Mitchell. It was Macy Oteague. This year, they have six guys currently averaging between 13 and 9 points per game. Their leading scorer only averaging 13, but six guys total averaging at least 9 per game. They have a kid named LJ Cryer who basically took a red shirt last year because there were so many good guards in front of him. He's actually leading the team in scoring at over 13 per game. They added James Akinjo, the point guard from Arizona, 
And, um, you know, he is having a great season for them. They got a couple guys back from last year's team, obviously Adam Flagler, obviously Matthew Mayer, uh, who were part a big part of that team. And then Kendall Brown, who is a potential lottery pick in this year's draft as a freshman, he also is averaging 13 points per game. So with Baylor, listen, they did not play the toughest out-of-conference schedule. They did destroy Villanova a few weeks ago. They beat Michigan in the Bahamas. Uh, I don't know that they're the best team, but I think they're absolutely deserving of being in the conversation. And so Baylor is the first team that I have amongst the consideration for the number one team in the country. Number two is actually the team that if I had an AP vote, I probably would have had them at number one after the first week of the season, and I wouldn't have removed them, and that is the Duke Blue Devils. Um, you know, Duke obviously coming into the season, I had my questions and concerns about them, but they go to Madison Square Garden on opening night. They beat Kentucky in a game that wasn't really as close as the final score would indicate. From there, they really have played very well. They took one loss. I would not have dropped them after that loss, but this is a really good team. And there's a few things that stand out with this Duke team right now and why I like them so much. The first one, and it's kind of important, they have the best player in college basketball in Paulo Bancaro, okay? I know he's a freshman, I know he's young, I know he's this, I know he's that, and I get the argument that college basketball is a sport where championships are won by older teams. Baylor was very experienced last year, Virginia the year before, Villanova in their championship runs. But it does, it does help having the best player in college basketball, and it's not as though that freshman-dominated teams or teams where freshmen were the best player have not won championships before. Jaleel Okafor, Tyus Jones, and Justice Winslow in 2015 at Duke, and obviously Anthony Davis, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist in 2012 uh, at Kentucky. And that Kentucky team actually reminds me a lot of this Duke team where really, really talented freshmen were joined by really, really talented upperclassmen. And that's also what I like about this Duke team as well. While Paulo Bancaro is the best player in college basketball, they have other guys that can take over games. We saw what Trevor Keels did on opening night against Kentucky, a game that I was at against Gonzaga. Uh, it was Wendell Moore, a junior, former five-star, top 20 or so prospect who really hadn't had a great college career so far. He took over. They have a big seven-foot-one center named Mark Williams. And so when you have four different players that can take over games, and then defensively, I think they give teams problems because you do have a 6'9", 6'10 guy in Paulo Bancaro, and of course a seven-foot-one center in Mark Williams, it makes it tough around the rim. And so you have the best player in college basketball. You have two or three guys that can step up and get you 20 on any given night. Um, and on top of that, what I would also say about Duke is I believe they now have the resume to back it up as well. Now, they haven't played as many marquee games as some other teams. But first of all, that neutral court win against Gonzaga, it matters. And I know Gonzaga lost to Alabama a few weeks later, but Gonzaga's a really good team. Destroyed Texas, destroyed UCLA, uh, took care of business against Texas Tech. Gonzaga's a really good team. That win is going to carry weight all year for Duke. Um, and then also I would say, I think that Kentucky win looks more and more impressive every single week as Kentucky, yes, they lost to Notre Dame, but they destroyed North Carolina. They destroyed Western Kentucky. And I really think Kentucky is actually a team that's surging. We'll talk about them in a minute in some kind of teams that are a little bit off the radar right now. As weird as it sounds saying Kentucky's off the radar, but I believe that they are. Uh, the only real concern that I have about Duke, like I said, love their personnel, Love the fact that that resume looks better and better. And I should mention, too, with Duke, it's also worth noting, their only loss was to Ohio State, a top 15 team on the road in a game where they actually had control for a big majority of that game. And so, you know, there's not much to like about, not like, not like about Duke. My only thought would be with Duke is I do think the depth could be a little bit of an issue. Right now, they're really only playing about six players, um, and look, that could come back to bite you, right? Foul trouble, nagging injuries. You don't root for injuries, but that's the reality. But what I would also say about Duke is in their two biggest games, if, if depth was that big of a concern, uh, Paulo Bancaro got cramps in both the Gonzaga game and the Kentucky game, barely played in the second half of each, and they had other guys step up. It's also worth noting for Duke, by the way, they have a freshman named A.J. Griffin who uh, got hurt in the early part of the season. He is back. He has played well the last two or three games. So he could really be that piece, whether it is ultimately off the bench, whether it is in eventually a starting role, but he could be that piece that steps up and be, it becomes the missing piece. But I, I really like this Duke team, man. And, you know, I think if right now I was betting on one team to definitively get uh, to the Final Four, it'd probably be Duke. They're really good. Like I said, after that Kentucky game, I would have put them at number one. I wouldn't have dropped them. The other team that I think I would consider at number one is Purdue. 
Um, and with Purdue, what I'll say is this, is I get that, and I've talked about this before, I know it's not sexy to talk about boring teams that uh, didn't have any crazy one-and-done commitments in the offseason, didn't take transfers, didn't lose this guy. Purdue was just a really good team last year that brought everybody back this year. But what stands out to me about Purdue and why I really like them and why I think you can make the argument they are the best team in college basketball is two things besides the fact that they are as experienced as they are. The first one, they have maybe the second best player in college basketball behind Paolo Bancaro, and that is Jaden Ivey. And if you have not seen this kid play yet, make some time. Next time Purdue is on TV, this kid is incredible. About a 6'3", 6'4", guard. First of all, very well schooled. His mom is actually the head coach at Notre Dame, so he's been around basketball his whole life. Uh, but he's also just this very explosive, very fluid athlete. In some ways, he reminds me of John Morant, the way that he plays and the way that he attacks the basket. And he's also a really good shooter, too. He's, he's now at about 44% shooting from three. And I think he is a guy that by, by the time we get around to this NBA draft, I think people are going to consider, maybe not for the number one overall pick, but I could see him going two, three, four, somewhere in that range after you get past Paolo Bancaro. Averaging almost 17 points, five rebounds, three and a half assists on 45% three-point shooting this year. And then the other thing I like about Purdue is kind of boring and kind of old school. They're really good in the post. Uh, they have a, a low post center named Zach Eady, who is seven foot four. I think he's the second tallest player in college basketball behind the kid at Western Kentucky. He's averaging 14 and a half points per game, seven and a half rebounds. And they have another kid, Travion Williams, six foot 10, who averages 13 and a half points and nine rebounds per game. And why I bring those guys up is this, is when I watch Purdue, something really interesting kind of stands out to me is that I think, you know, we basketball has evolved over the years, but certainly over the last seven, eight, nine years, in that it is such a guard-dominated, wing-dominated, three-point shooting-dominated sport. And I get why. I get the analytics. I understand that uh, you know you have to make fewer threes to get the same amount of points as you do twos. I get all that stuff. But when I watch Purdue, something really strikes me, and that is that um, there is a reason that the sport of basketball has been played through the low post for like the last 70 years. And it's because when you have a guy that's just bigger and stronger than everybody and you can dump the ball down to him and it's an automatic two points, like that's not the worst strategy either. And so when I watch Purdue, that, that's what stands out to me about them is they have so much depth and so much size and they get so many easy points because of it. It's also worth noting, by the way, they are the number two team in America in rebound margin, which means how many rebounds per game you're out-rebounding your opponent. The only team that's ranked ahead of them is Kentucky. Part of that is that Kentucky has a player that is leading the country in, in, in rebounding in Oscar Shibwe, who is averaging 15 and a half rebounds per game and had 28 rebounds against Western Kentucky the other day. And so I bring it up because when I look at Purdue, you have the best guard in college basketball, and you're the best rebounding team in college basketball. That will take you a long way uh, when it comes to March Madness. Now, there are some issues kind of defensively and, and speed and skill-wise in terms of the wings, and they're not the most athletic, the most sexy team, but I do think Purdue is the last uh, of three or four, I should say, teams that I believe you can consider for number one in the country. Uh, the fourth team, the final team that I would say that I believe you can consider for number one in the country, and I've talked about them a lot over the last couple of weeks, it's the Arizona Wildcats. And in Arizona, they are coming off a loss to Tennessee. It was their first loss of the year, and you can knock them a little bit, but I would actually counter with the opposite. I would counter by saying, you know, Tennessee, well, This first of all, credit Arizona, just, just beyond anything else, credit Arizona flying across country two days before Christmas, to play a top 20 team, okay? There are not a lot of schools that would be willing to do that, to, to fly all the way across country two days before Christmas. You know you're not going to get the best effort from your guys. They're going to want to go on Christmas break. But beyond that, yes, Arizona lost, but they fell down 16-2, to and they still managed to, despite that, rally. Uh, they lose by four in a weird, bizarre game. There was technical fight. It was just a poorly officiated game, all that good stuff. And when I look at Arizona, I think they got all the pieces. They're the top scoring team in college basketball. I've talked about them a lot over the course of uh, the first couple weeks of this season in which that Sean Miller left the cupboard full in terms of talent on the roster. And then from there, what was interesting about that, Sean Miller leaves the cupboard full. 
Tommy Lloyd comes in from Gonzaga. He was, of course, the head Gonzaga assistant forever. He comes in, takes over, and it almost feels like it was a perfect setup for him because he has the exact kinds of players that you need to have success. Um, I've talked a lot about Paolo Bancaro. I've talked a lot about Jaden Ivey. Ben Matherin is the star at Arizona, 18.5 points per game, 6.5 rebounds per game, 38% three-point shooting. Just a great story. Talked about him a few weeks ago. Could have got, gone to the NBA last year. Could have been drafted probably in the second round. Could be grinding out in the G League instead. Uh, came back to college for another year. Also, Azulis Tabellis and Christian Coloco down low. Kirk Creesa is an excellent point guard. And so you look at this Arizona team. I just think they are really, really, really talented Really good players off the bench, Dalen Terry, Pell Larson, on and on and on. So those are the four teams that I believe you can consider for the number one team in the country. Baylor, Duke, Purdue, and Arizona. If I had to rank them in terms of teams that I think are most likely to win a championship, I'd probably go Purdue 1, Duke 2, Arizona 3, Baylor 4. Um, I think Duke probably has the is best equipped to just make a run at least to the Final Four. Uh, but those are the four. I think there's some other really good teams outside of that. Um, you know, you talk about some of kind of the, the quote-unquote disappointment from these COVID uh, positive tests and all that stuff. I thought UCLA was starting to play really well. They absolutely destroyed Marquette the last time they took the court, which was all the way back on December 15th, or December 11th, excuse me. Um, you know, on top of that, Gonzaga, I still think, is right there. I think they're playing really well. Kansas is interesting, right? Kansas is my preseason national championship pick. They really, uh, you know, it's been a light out-of-conference schedule. They did beat Michigan State on opening night. Since then, you know, they beat Iona. They beat Missouri. Their game against Colorado was canceled the other day. Uh, they will open Big 12 play on New Year's Day. And uh, from there, we'll see what Kansas has. But those are the teams that kind of stand out to me. Um, and yeah, those are the teams that I believe are the top teams in the country. Really quick, I did want to give a shout-out to four other teams, and I tweeted this, and it got some good traction. I think a lot of you agree with me. Four teams that I believe are somewhat off the radar in terms of the national conversation. And when I say the national conversation, I don't mean the top 25 rankings, because there's going to be a few teams that I mentioned that are kind of in the top 25, but four teams that I believe just are not getting enough credit for how good they are in college basketball. The first one is the Auburn Tigers. And I think most people listening are probably like, dude, Auburn's ranked in the top 20, top 15. How can you say they're underrated? How could you this? How could you that? It's because they, they kind of are underrated, right? Jabari Smith is another guy. I know I keep mentioning top two, top three, top. Jabari Smith, there's now conversation he's going to get drafted ahead of Paulo Bancaro. I don't know if I believe that, but you can see the argument. This is a kid that's a legit 6'10", 6'11". Uh, he's shooting 45% from three, 16.5 points, seven, seven and a half rebounds. Um, and what I like about Air Auburn is they create so much matchup problems with him and Walker Kessler down low. Walker Kessler, of course, the transfer from North Carolina. Um, the only real concern I have with, with Auburn right now is kind of at the point guard spot. But even that's going to be really interesting because Alan Flanagan, who is a projected starter in the backcourt, is just coming back from injury. But Auburn right now as we speak, is currently 11-1. and Their only loss was an absolute war against UConn in the Battle for Atlantis double overtime game. Uh, and I think that shows how good UConn is too, by the way. We're not going to talk much UConn because, uh, you know, I, I think they're really good. They took care of Marquette. I want to see what they look like now that they're back being fully healthy. But Auburn is the first team I believe is completely underrated. The other team, another top 15 team that I just don't think is getting enough credit is LSU, Will Wade, the bad boys. I talked about him a little bit on my things that I am grateful for in college sports, college basketball, you know, on my, uh, my last Thursday show. This is a really good team. And what's kind of interesting about them is it shows how different college basketball is, right? College football, you recruit to a system, you recruit to a style. College basketball, you just have to adjust every year based on the players that you have. And last year when it came to college basketball, uh, LSU was this dynamic offensive team uh, with Cam Thomas, with Trenton Watford, all these guys that are now in the NBA. LSU this year is a great defensive team, number two in the country in scoring defense. They're only giving up 54 points per game. And they're doing it with kind of a bunch of different guys. I just I, I like the depth of this team. 
Their, their best player is probably a kid named Tari Eason, who's coming off the bench, averaging 16.5 points, 7.5 rebounds. I think he could be a potential one-and-done at LSU. He is not by technicality a one-and-done. Played last year at Cincinnati before transferring to LSU. Uh, they got a kid, Eric Gaines, in the backcourt that I really like. Darius Days, who's been around forever. Xavier Pinson, a transfer from Missouri. I think this team is really good, and here's the good part, people. You know who the next team LSU plays is? You know who the next team Auburn plays is? They play each other to open SEC play on Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, ESPNU. Uh, you know your boy Torres will be watching that one. Really quick, uh, a couple other teams that stand out. One, and I think I talked about them a little bit last week, Providence College, okay? Uh, Providence is, to me, an interesting team because I believe they do something better than anybody else in college basketball. They just completely dictate to you how the game is going. They make you play their game, I believe, better than anyone in college basketball. They are tough. They are physical. They're aggressive. And they make you play their game. I mean, I watched them go into the XL Center against UConn a few weeks ago. And UConn, home game, night game, loud crowd, rowdy, big game, mean something, all that good stuff. You know what ended up happening? Providence put it made it into a physical war and absolutely you know ended up beating UConn and I look at this this Providence team and I think they're kind of who they've always been but with just some better players this year I mean Nate Watson down low that's another kid that seems like he's been in college forever averaging 14 points and six rebounds per game um, you know another kid down low Noah Horchler who's kind of a stretch four stretch five kind of guy can hit three step out and do that AJ Reeves and Al Durham the Indiana transfer but what I believe they do they just, like I said, they make you play their game. I think they do that better than anybody in college basketball. And then the last one, another Big East team, Seton Hall, a team that I've also talked about a little bit on this show so far. They're a team that's currently, as we record here, sitting at 9-1. and one. They, unfortunately, have been on a COVID pause dating back to their last game, which was all the way back on December 12th. So hopefully they get back on the court soon. Um, they are slated to play Providence this week, although, again, we'll see that game. It, Providence and Seton Hall are slated to play at the same time as LSU-Auburn. So have your, have your finger-clicking uh, channel hands ready because that, that should be a really fun one. Um, but what I would say about Seton Hall, what I love about them, they go about nine deep and everybody does something a little bit different. They have size, they have toughness, they have shooting, they have spacing, they have dribble drive guys. They are just a deep team where all the pieces complement each other. That's another one. We'll see if it gets played, but I certainly hope it does. All right. I think that is it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I do want to thank you guys for listening to today's show. Uh, really fun show. Really enjoyed it. Love what you guys uh, bring to this show. And I hope, by the way, as I said to lead the show, I hope everybody had a Merry Christmas. I hope everybody had a great holiday. And I appreciate you guys for your support this time of year. I know many of you are out of the office. I know many of you are commuting. I know many of you are not uh, traveling and doing as much as you normally do. So I truly appreciate everything that you guys do for this show to keep it going. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you, make sure you're subscribed. iTunes, Apple, Spotify, uh, Podcast Addict app, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Uh, also, make sure you're following on social media. Make sure if you have a team that you love, you're following Torres on UK, which is a Kentucky-specific site, Torres on Indiana, Torres on Arizona, Torres on UConn, Torres on the Vols, Torres on the Hogs, Torres on Bama, all of our team-specific Twitter accounts, make sure you're following those. Uh, and also, that's really about it. The, the merch is available. Uh, the Revenge Tour t-shirts, we did put out a couple of those. Uh, we did a kind of a promo after the Kentucky game for a little bit of uh, tornado relief, so we appreciate those of you who reached out and, and did purchase some of those t-shirts. Also, our Mike F. and Woodson t-shirts are selling like wildfire. With that said, I think it's time for me to get out of here. Long enough show today here going uh, coming out of the holiday weekend, but I hope everybody had a Merry Christmas. I hope everybody's relaxing this week. I hope you're ready for a fun week of sports, a lot of bowl games, hopefully a lot of college basketball as well. With that said, shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. I will be back on Thursday with another episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.